Good evening, everybody. Welcome tonight. We're joined from the Netherlands by Geertje Tona and Freek Cox over on scene number two. Here we go. <laughs> Good evening. Oh, he's gone. Oh, is he gone? He's gone. Come back again. Freek, where are you? I've lost you. I'm here. Is your camera gone off? <laughs> turn your camera off and on again. Try turning your camera off and on again. Is your camera off and on again? Try that. Yeah, yeah. I put it back on. What's happening? What's happening? You've gone. There you are. You're back. You are back. I can see. Yay! There you are. Good evening. How are you all? How are you today? Good. Have you all, have you all, had, have, have you all had a good weekend? Yeah, I've watched a lot of badminton in Paris. Have you? <laughs> He's gone. I umpired, I umpired badminton last night and... Uh, Today I became a godfather to a uh, to a little boy, so uh, all good. That's fun. That's how it sounds absolutely fantastic. And do you umpire, umpire all the time? And okay, I'm going to ask you this question. I've been dying to ask this question. Umpiring. So is that how do you become an umpire from the get go? Let's start with you, Frick. Let me ask you that question to you first of all, please. How did you start? How did you first of all? When did the when was the first time you ever umpired a game of badminton? <laughs> that was uh, 31 years ago, in 1990. Wow. Uh, I joined the club as a player, as a recreational player, because I was in love with a girl in my street that played badminton. <laughs> and I what was her name? also played... Sorry? What was her name? Eugenie. Hey, nice. I hope she's not watching this because <laughs> she has never heard this story Did in you? her life. I love that. She she never she doesn't know about this at all whatsoever. She, oh yeah. Because I was way too shy, and uh, I discovered already at a very well. I wasn't that young. I was sixteen, but at sixteen, that my badminton talents were so well hidden <laughs> that now thirty one years later, I'm yet to discover them. <laughs> so, uh, and so is the rest of the world. No one has ever seen them because they're simply non-existent. But even at that low level that I was uh, trying to hold the racket against the shuttle, uh, I noticed that some of those other kids, they were not playing by the rules. And uh, if there's one thing I hate, it's injustice. So I decided, you can beat me fair and square if you're more talented, which 99.999% of the world is anyway. But you cannot beat me by cheating. That yeah. I will not allow. So yes. I bought a book, The Laws of Badminton, and I started studying it. Really? And, uh, well, of course, people started noticing that if you play at a level nobody cares about and you start giving service faults during your practice games, then people are going like, what, what is going on there? Why is that little boy giving service faults to his opponent? And the opponent didn't have a clue what they were doing wrong because they didn't know the laws. So then the club uh, approached me and they said, we're, uh, we're being promoted to the first division in the Netherlands. And when you play first division or Premier League in the Netherlands, you're supposed to have umpires. You have to bring your own umpires to the league, like in, uh, in those times, in the 90s. And they only had one and they needed two. So they said, you seem to know all the laws and you're tall. I'm six foot seven. Right. Wow. Uh, so you have a natural authority. Why don't you become our second umpire? And I was like, well, to be honest, I was about to quit the club because uh, 
there was heartache. The girl didn't uh, <laughs> see me. Because was it was it because they're all cheats? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was because her dad liked me a lot and called me his future son-in-law. And when you're a teenager, the last thing you want is your daddy's pick. So uh, I was doomed to start with. But uh, I said I was about to uh, stop because I'm no good at playing and I'm getting frustrated here. I lose a lot of matches. Yeah, but you can stay on as an umpire. I said, yeah, right. I pay an annual fee. I don't play just to be an umpire. They said, no, you don't have to pay the fee. We'll pay your expenses. We get you a uniform. (laughs) We'll subscribe you for a course. All you have to do is show up. Wow. And I'm like, okay, I get a uniform. I get an education. Wow. This sounds like a good plan. So I said, how long do I have to stick around for? Five years. So I signed a contract for wow. five years. Wow. And then something went wrong and I'm still around. So So can I ask you a question? So was that, so when you were, Okay, at 16 years old, when you when you you're obviously a hobbyist badminton player, a club badminton player. Um, if you yeah. weren't if you weren't going to be an umpire, what were you? What was your dreams of studying to do when you're at school? What did you expect to do when you were 16? And what did you well, expect I mean, to do uh, for a job? As let's far clarify as? one thing. You introduced yourself as an amateur. Yes. and I are also amateurs. Good this work. is a hobby. This is not a is job. It? Is that right? So I is I, it? I was pursuing another educational career. So I I did uh, graduate, I got my master's degree at the University of Amsterdam in communication science. And I'm an account director at a big American IT firm at the moment. Cool. So this is hobby. This is Is side stuff. Is there anybody full time on that job? Is there anybody that does it for the for the money that that lives on it? No, since since about two years, we have six semi-professional BWF umpires. Really? So they are paid part-time by BWF and they do more tournaments than anybody else. Really? And this is a first step towards professionalizing, officiating and umpiring. The same goes for referees. There's a bunch of referees who have turned semi-professional. But most of us are just crazy about the sport. Love it. And we want to have that best seat of the house and we <laughs> refuse to pay for it. <laughs> then you have to become a technical official. I like that. What about, you, what about you, Hitcher? Yes, you like that. I got well, it. It, it. It's similar, but um, uh, a lot later. <laughs> you were also in love with Eugenie? No, no, I wasn't. No, but it is it is partially my husband's fault. I'll be honest about that because I wasn't into badminton, um, but he was. So when we met, I got introduced to the sport. And then when uh, he was playing for a club and he was playing fourth division, so that's like five levels below Premier League. Uh, but at the time, the Netherlands was really suffering on umpire level. I think we had about 23 or 28 at the time, so really not enough. So all clubs up until uh, third or fourth division were required to deliver an umpire. Uh, so this email went round in our club and it's like, can anyone please do this? Because we will get fined. Uh, and we were a small club, so a fine is a big issue. Um, so I was like, well, if nobody will, just send me then. It's fine. I'll, 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 take, I'll take a hit for the team. Um, but yeah, that got a bit out of hand because I got my national accreditation in 2011 um, and just went from there. And well, since then, I was fortunate enough to, to also travel around a bit and, and see a bit of Europe and beyond. Um, but Amazing. yeah, it's, it's a bit of a whole, um, an accident, really. <laughs> so when did you start? But an enjoyable one. <laughs> Martin, she's very modest, but she's the rising star in umpiring, mate. 
Really? No doubt about that. She's our rising star. She'll be the next BWF of the Netherlands, and uh, she's gonna go places. And you, so yours, did, yours didn't really hit. Yours didn't really start from playing, really, as such. Do you play club? Did you play club badminton then? Is I that... played a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I played a little. I played. I played some lower league levels as well. Uh, I was also involved with the youth committee, so I organise activities for the youth and and do you know things to get more youth members basically. Cool. Um, and I just uh, decided uh, to to. Um, so it overlapped the youth committee and this umpiring thing, and then I realized umpiring actually does require a lot of time, both the uh, getting to know the laws and, and all the instructions, and then also doing the practical part. And I really don't live in a good place to be an umpire in the Netherlands. I always have to drive at least an hour or an hour and a half to get to matches. Uh, but somehow I find myself in a car on weekends lots of times, so there must be something I like about it. It's, uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I've never, I mean, I, I, I suppose from a social side, from what my experience is, is, you know, you go to local tournaments in this, in the UK, I'm just talking about, you go to local tournaments and, and people play the tournaments over weekends and that kind of thing and they'll play it Saturday, Sunday and then you'll have a, you have to have an umpire during the final game only, right? And that's normal, isn't it? And I mean, an umpire is quite an alien thing over here in the UK, I suppose, unless it's a proper All England or, you know, these big, big events, you know, it's not like what you're saying in the, you know, there was only 26, what did you say? There was only 27 umpires available and you need to have however many i mean that's that to me is like a that's a different world isn't it yeah and i think i think the good thing is that um this this delivery system really got a lot of umpires the problem is though that the minimum requirement was five league matches a year. So if a competition is about four, four and a half months, maybe five, uh, then doing five matches is not that many. Um, so, uh, even, even for those who were like, okay, I'll do it for my club. Five actually was already getting a bit much. If you're also playing yourself on weekends, so you have like one night, you'll go somewhere to umpire and then the other you'll be playing yourself. So it's still, it's still hard. I don't think we still up to the level that we would like as it is in numbers of umpires. There should, there should be, there should be more. Yeah, many sure. more, sure. many more. In fact, now at the moment, uh, half of the first division matches are short of umpires. Last night, the match I did, I was alone. We're supposed to be two because they play on two courts. But yesterday, so also only half of the matches were manned because I was alone at that club. And how do you become qualified to become an umpire? To how do you how do you go from being being that kind of hobbyist umpire that kind of reads the book and quite interested in the technical side of it and what's right and what's wrong and how does how does one get a certificate to say okay I can be an umpire officially well, in, we have in, a, in certain we tournaments have mm-hmm. we have a program in the Netherlands uh, which is uh, uh, partially created by the National Olympic Committee because we're in like this group of sports associations that work together on uh, standardizing court officials whereas you uh, First, you have to do a, a theory test, to, so they check what your level of knowledge on the laws of badminton is. And then you start like an internship, where you go with a mentor to uh, at least five. If you're talented, it sticks to five. But uh, uh, if it doesn't go that fast, then even more uh, first division matches, where you get pointers and you're, uh, you're coached. And it's actually the mentor who is an experienced umpire 
who can take over a match and take decisions because of course when you're not certificated you're not allowed to hand out cards for misconducts and all that kind of stuff but your mentor can do that in your place so the players cannot have a field day and think oh there's a green horn uh, on the chair i can do whatever i want no then the mentor will uh, take charge but uh, that way you are guided slowly into the process and if uh, the mentor says you've done enough and you've reached a, a certain level, then you're invited for an assessment, which is on the qualifying day of our national championships. And there you uh, umpire for a full day, being watched by two assessors. And then at the end of the day, you hear whether you get your certificate or your second traineeship starts, either or. And, and what is it? What is it? I mean, I was, I was, I'm quite interested in the in the service judging thing. That's obviously a relative because the new. I mean, I don't know. You tell me, but there's a, because of the new regulation on height of serve, which is relatively new. Has there always been service judges, even without that? Aside of that, I, I mean, I won't, I'm, yeah, only, I'm only aware of it now because of those line things. But was, were they always there? I don't know. Were they always there? Those no, things? no, no. Those devices have been there for a couple of years. 2018. Yes. Yep. Uh, before that, we had uh, the floating rib uh, was the height. You had to stick with the shuttle right. below your like lowest rib, your floating rib. And it even said an imaginary line. Yeah, an imaginary line. So you can imagine a nice pun of a word, the amount of discussion, whether it was below that imaginary line or not the moment it was hit. And of course, you have the shaft movement which was then yes. still not allowed. The shaft had to be pointing downwards. First it was pointing downwards, then it was pointing downwards discernibly. So they kept changing the wording there too. How do you, so how yeah, do you, sorry, what was that? Sorry, sorry, for 40, Freca, what, years, what was that, Freca? What was that? What was that? You just said it could be facing down, but then discernibly, what's the difference? Well, uh, <laughs> they had like these graphs <laughs> where you could, where, where you could say when it just said pointing down, one would argue that this is already pointing down because yes. the the left side is like uh, one tenth of an inch lower than the right side. So then they said, no, no, that's that's not clear. It should be discernibly. So there should, should be, be at least a gap of uh, that much. So they made a new graph and uh, made it a bit easier for us. But there was still a lot of discussion. I think a good thing about the fixed height is that a lot of the discussion around that is gone, even though it are the same sets of eyes that look through that device and determine whether it's below 115 or not. Yeah. But it takes away a lot of discussion because the it players seems, can it train seems to be it. More objective. It seems to be more objective yeah. to them. And on some level it is because it's the same line for everyone. So whether you're tall or short, it's all 115 meters. Definitely. So I think that is the biggest improvement on that law. Um, but yeah, you can still, I mean, you still have C players just walk over and be like, where is that line on my body? And do I agree with your decision? <laughs> even though you can't tell from just looking where the line is, whether you struck it beneath that or not. Yeah. But what you see, especially on a professional level, players have trained to hit below 115. It's amazing. And how that's why, uh, there's much less discussion because they know they've trained about it. And when they try a trick, which they sometimes do, uh, then they also are aware that they were above it when they hit it above it. And then when you fault them, there's no discussion. So, is that, so you know that discernible angle, the, the shaft 
it's got to be not below discernibly you know low can is that rule now gone as you can do anything yes, you want yes. you can do anything you want as long as yep. um, it's below yeah, 115 yeah, yeah. You so can, you could you can serve upwards as long as it's below 115 so you could lie on the ground players. you could lie on the ground right you could sit on the ground and do it overarm as long as it's well, as long as it starts below uh, 115 that's all right a part of both your feet has to be standing still on the ground while oh, you yeah. serve yeah i like yeah. Jeffrey. So, uh, Lay, lying down, uh, that would become a bit harder, I would say. And I don't think you gain a lot of advantage by lying down when the opponent can smash the shuttle back. Correct. <laughs> no, <laughs> listen, it's a, it's a ridiculous statement. And and so, can you, are you an umpire as well? Yep. And how did you, and the other, and can, can anybody that umpires be a line service judge? Well, we alternate this role. So either you're an umpire or you're a service judge. Really? And during a tournament, you will see us alternate. So if, if a referee is, is up to scratch for the team, really make sure that you do all your duties. Right. You will have a, about a reasonably same amount of service judging as you have umpiring. So that will be sort of the same. So for instance, if you're in a rotational system on one court, it will be either up, down, out. So you'll have a match off after two duties or you'll be down. So service judge, umpiring and then out, which is... For some reasons, the better uh, way, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's always you alternate these roles. You're always one match umpire, next match service judge, next match umpire, next match service judge. Yeah, we go to tournaments for both those roles. The only yep. role within technical officiating, the only two other roles which we will not do at the tournament is either line judge or be a referee because that's a specific function that is done by a specific other group of technical officials. But when you go to a tournament, you're umpire, you umpire, you are automatically also a service judge at that tournament, unless it's a tournament, which happens, for example, in Para quite a few times, where they don't do service judging. Yes. Can I, I, was, I was interested, I had, a, I had a thought, actually, I was thinking about this. So, when you're in the chair, you're in the chair high up in the, as an umpire or in the service judge, if somebody... If somebody, a line judge, for example, sees an incident happen, right? If they, if they, obviously, the line judges can be closer to a, a part of play, correct? So, if you understand what I mean, so if if the you know if the if the, if the shuttle is in the far right hand corner of the court and something happens in that corner and the line judge is standing looking at it, can you take into consideration anything that line judge says, or any other than where the shuttle's landed in a row? It's a very good question, actually. It's a very because, good question. Because uh, it's not covered by the laws. Oh, really? Or instructions. Or instructions. But, of course, when you're smart, you can. Depending so, on how this smart line judge indicates how, to how you what has happened, are. how experienced he is. And, uh, Correct, yes. I understand that. No, I'm, not, listen, I'm, not you I'm just thinking, you know, I was just thinking about that situation where, you know, somebody that's standing there and they're standing, look at it, and somebody you just, you know, you just look and somebody would just shake their head at you and go, no, nah, that was, you know, yeah, you hit it. Or Well, I, I can actually, I can give you an example because it's, way before old laws etc so it doesn't hurt or harm anyone anymore yes. and i'm not going to mention any names anyway but in a previous lifetime let's say i was an international line judge and i was at a tournament uh, uh, an international tournament and in those days coaching was not allowed during uh, during matches 
And uh, I noticed, because I was on the far end of the court, that a certain player from a certain Asian country was receiving advice from a guy which uh, looked suspiciously like his coach from the audience, verbally. And it was a, it was a sold-out capacity there, so the umpire had no way of knowing this. So I just raised my hand to the umpire. And the umpire, uh, well, he waved me over. He said, stand up and come here. So I walked to him and I told him, this player is being coached by a coach from the stands. And he said, really? I said, yes. I heard him shout. I saw the player looking and I saw even the guy make gestures. Yes. Thank you very much. And I went back to my chair and the umpire called the referee and the referee went to the coach and the coach was removed from the stands. Good. So, yeah, that's good. It does happen. <laughs> yep. and, uh, and you, you also sorry. have line judges who will be very subtle in trying to tell you it was actually a hit shuttle so yeah. even though they make a call the way they make their call will be distinct from what they normally do and they can tell you oh it was actually sorry, a hit shuttle sorry, so what do you mean, what do you, sorry what do you mean hit shuttle what do you mean by that so if, if a player hits a shuttle and it travels away from the net, so he touches the shuttle and it moves further away, that's actually doesn't matter where it lands anymore. It's already touched before it hit the ground, yes. so it doesn't matter where it lands. Yes, of course. And if you've missed it because there is a lot of noise around you, so you didn't hit hear shuttle, it, which sometimes happens, then your line judge can be very subtle in, in letting you know it was a hit shuttle. Okay, good. Thanks. Yeah, or if the shuttle drops, you know, behind the back of the player and it might touch his shirt. That's right. Your, your view is obstructed, but the line just saw that it went out via the shirt. Instead of uh, calling out, they might give you a signal that uh, says touch, and then you can call a fault, and yeah. that's the end of so that. So can I ask you a question about something? So I was, I was interested in, I, had an, I, was, I was thinking about, about I guess, I, I think service, service, service calls are... It's a human nature thing. It's got to be a human nature element of it, where you look at somebody and think, "Is it? Is it? Was that? Was that high? If it's borderline, you might look at it and think, "What's that high?" And then the next time they serve, you're going to be saying, "I'm going to have to watch out for that." And and they say, "Yeah, do you know what it is?" It is. And do you know, it does it become a human nature thing where you think to yourself, "Hold on, this is wrong." Now I'm expecting it to be high, or I'm expecting it to be low, or you've decided on something before it's happened. Does that do you, do you understand what I mean by that? If if you think that if you look at if if I was a service judge and I sat in that chair and I would watch someone and I would think, "Oh, that was close. That was close." And I'm going to let it go, but it was close. And then the next time you're going to go, mm, that, "No, that isn't right, actually." And also, it's quite interested. I, I suppose you can see that I was. I had an incident a few years ago. I was at a tournament and uh, somebody served, and it was the it was the time of the rib, and they served, and they set up. It's the most common thing in the world. You must see it all the time. People raise their body, don't they? They go on their toes to hit the shuttle. You know, they set up and they think, okay, this is perfect. And then just before they hit it, they go on their tippy toes, right? And before you know it, it's another four inches on where it was before, and you think, no, actually, that was uh, that was a uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to ask you on that question. That's uh, I'll leave it. I'll, I'll leave that to you. So tell me, do you both play badminton still, and how often? Yeah, I do. I play about do two you? or three times a week. Do you? What do you play? Depending on if I have matches, so yeah. What do you play? Uh, I don't know, low-level low elite matches. Uh, I know, but doubles, uh, on, doubles mixed, or mixed? mixed team. Do you mixed or doubles? Uh, I play all, actually, because there's do only you? two ladies on my team. So I play singles, doubles, and mixed. Yeah. Wow. Singles. I'm a humanitarian, 
So I don't think it's to the benefit of neither me nor anybody else in the badminton you. world. I don't believe you. I pick up a racket again. <laughs> I don't believe play. you. I think you're mistaken. I think you should play again. And I think it's no. uh, it's if I was six foot seven, I'd be I'd be there. I'd be all over that. You'd be taking on Victor Axelsen. Tell you what, uh, a number of years ago, we have these some of these tournaments where, for fun, on a Saturday morning when there's no matches, we have an officials tournament, and I won. Uh, a consolation prize <laughs> at the German Open 2008 technical officials tournament because I graciously lost all five <laughs> matches from zero. <laughs> but the cool part was the consolation prize was a was a mark of Yonex. And unfortunately, it's out of cameras and out of my hands reach. Otherwise, I could show it to you on the finals day. Uh, Minoru Yoneyama, the founder of Yonex, and then the honorary president and CEO of Yonex. Nowadays, he's retired. He came as a guest of honor, and before every final, he came to greet the team of officials. And when he, when it was my final mixed doubles, he came to greet me. I took the mug out of my bag. I grabbed the marker. And I asked him to sign the mug for me, and he signed it in Japanese. Wow, how and cool that is that? And that to me is a very precious tournament oh, yeah. souvenir that I still have in a glass cabinet full of tournament souvenirs in my office here. And do you, do you, Thanks you get... to my lack of skills. If I would have won a match, I would have never had that mug. I wouldn't have had a signed mug of Minoru Yoneyama, so but so now I do. No, so I'm so happy that I... There's no money in it, right? Has any skills. So do you ever get to play... So there's no money in it right and it's all you know you get your expenses and you go and you stay in hotels and whatever else and that's all great um do you never get to play why why don't all the officials come together that earn absolutely hee-haw and just take their racket and say do you know on a sunday at nine o'clock in the morning we're going to go and play badminton on the main hall Could you no do, but we do could that you, sometimes do you do that oh i love that i'm gonna be an umpire <laughs> There's some tournaments that organize that uh, when you're involved in Solibat, like I am. Uh, uh, sometimes there's a, like an exhibition match for Solibat where we get to hold the record. Because I repeat, I will refuse to call what I do on a badminton court playing. I'm holding a record. But uh, uh, we, we do get to do that. Yeah, I've been on the center court of the All England. I mean, with a record in my hand. Oh, it didn't I look love good. That. Thank God the cameras were off. But... <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah, I like. They, they, they do do Sorry. that sometimes, and and I remember once at a smaller international tournament where, I think it was only two courts left, and there were some kids of a former umpire wanting to play. I said, "Well, let's go then." So I was in my umpiring gear, just just knocked up with them a few times, but they loved it because they were on the real court of oh, the yeah. tournament. Um, so yeah, sometimes if we get a chance, we'll be like, "Oh, why not?" But don't get too sweaty; you still have to go on court. That's, a, that's <laughs> exactly. A, yeah, that's a good point. And where have you where have you all travelled, and how often? How do you know? How do you know when you've got a gig? I suppose. Well, Freke has travelled a lot more than me. I think he's he's covered a hundred countries by now. Have you seventy one? Um, oh, sorry, wow. sorry. Um, but yeah, no, I've I've been around Europe, so like uh, Spain or Portugal, uh, Croatia, also to Russia, Finland, um, Slovenia, which was one of my favorite uh, locations to go as well, also because of hospitality there. Um, but I've also been to Macau once, so that's close to Hong Kong, China. Um, 
But what you know is in the Netherlands, we have this list of tournaments, uh, international tournaments that we that we divide amongst uh, each other. Right. And so you can sort of give your first, second and third preference. And then amongst each other, we decide who goes where. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, you should probably go to that tournament, a higher level tournament. And you, you, you should show yourself, basically. So we, we pay attention to that as well. And do you, I, I suppose it's the kind of thing, obviously, Frick, Frick, um you obviously have a, I don't know if, do you have a, do you have a full-time job as well as, do you have a full-time yep. job as well? And so when you go to these things, that's, I guess you take holiday, right? Yep. And you're expected to be yeah. there for, is, is it a week or how long do you go to these things for? Depends, depends, of course. If it's if it's a tournament that's a bit lower level, like I, I visited a few weeks ago in France, it was under 17, so it didn't start until Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that was a tournament, so I arrived on a Thursday. Um, so that only takes out two days of your week. Uh, but if you go to the other side of the world, it will probably take you more than one week because you have to travel there and you have to travel back as well. So that will take yeah. more than a week. Yeah, and for BWF tournaments, you usually fly in at least 48 hours before the tournament to get rid of your jet lag before the tournament starts. And so for me, wow. indeed, next to the list that uh, that Heertje uh, uh, was talking about, uh, I need to give BWF my availability, say, end of October for the next calendar year and then uh, hopefully sometime by the end of December they will let me know which one or two because that's usually uh, the amount that uh, that I get and then I also get one or two from BWF Para because that's a, a different group of empires and a separate list uh, that might be the odd one from Badminton Europe because we have quite a few uh, European uh, championships in a year, juniors, seniors, para, team, uh, team you name it. And then uh, 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 one from, uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, this is also, uh, we look at the level of an umpire and if they're uh, going up or not, we give uh, uh, super talents like Keertje and Paul and Raymond at least two uh, 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 high-profile tournaments in Europe, and uh, uh, I take what's left usually because, well, I'm a lost cause. Let's say <laughs> in this respect, no, because I'm already I'm already at the BWF level, so there's less of a necessity to show myself within uh, within Europe. It, it's not arrogance. I want to really emphasize that I love going to every level of tournament. And I say yeah, okay. yes to every invitation that I get, even in the Netherlands. If I mean, I, uh, some Saturday mornings I go to my local club and I teach the young children how to surf legally. So uh, I, I don't like having the attitude, oh, you're a established BWF, so you cherry pick your tournaments. Quite the opposite is true. If Geertje can go to such a tournament or Paul, instead of me, I would prefer them to go. Because they still have to uh, to climb a few steps on the ladder, and it's much more important for our national association that we have two or three BWFs than it's just me uh, going uh, to the other side of the world once or twice a year. So it's I'm hard, very conscious of, of my role there, and uh, I love also doing the Dutch international tournaments, Dutch Junior, Dutch International, Dutch Open. I've been to each of them at least ten times because I love paying back to my national association, because let's be fair, without the National Badminton Association of the Netherlands, I would have never become a BE umpire, and I would have never become a BWF umpire, and I would have never become a BWF para umpire, 
So who am I to say no to a request from them? Also in the league, never ever. And and all three, uh, if I if I compare it to, to to some tournaments I've visited, all three tournaments that we organize in the Netherlands are of a really high level. All volunteers are absolutely amazing and really do everything they can to have a uh, an optimum situation for both the players and the technical officials. So uh, one of the many reasons why I would actually always love doing all three, usually not possible with work, but. Yeah, the, the, all three are on top of my list. And it, must be, it must be hard with family now. It must be hard with family now as well. I mean, you, you know, you, all of your holidays, really, you're talking about all your holidays are taken up by going to be a, an official baton, uh, official at baton tournaments, right? Do you get a summer holiday? How do you, how do you manage holidays like with your family? <laughs> to be fair, I met, I met my missus at one of those tournaments. So it's all her fault now. <laughs> so uh, uh, she does have a better understanding of uh, letting me go to those tournaments because if if I had been stricter before, we would have never met. Uh, so that helps. And it's not, uh, it's, not, it's, not a per, it's not a perk where your partner can go with you, say, and stay in the room well, you, or that you, kind of thing. You do try that. Uh, it's, it's it's a small perk. It's a bit it's it's a bit tricky because. Uh, for reasons of expenses, for example, we are supposed to share rooms. Oh yeah, with a, with oh, a same God. sex uh, really? uh, technical wow. official yeah. colleague. So the moment you would bring your partner, um, yeah, that would bring extra costs. I'm surprised about which that. Which at some tournaments you can, you have to pay those extra costs, which is of course perfectly understandable. Secondly. If you take your your partner in in crime or in life or whatever you want to call it uh, to a tournament with you, you only see them at night. Yes, that's right. That's the moment when you're supposed to recuperate yes, and get ready for the next day of umpiring because you're not there on a holiday. Yeah. Often those tournaments are manned by professional players and they expect a professional attitude and a of professional course. level of the officials as well. Yep. So you need your rest. And uh, if you only see your partner at night, she wants to talk about, hey, hey how was the day? And hey, I've seen this and I've seen that. And Maybe before some you know, <laughs> Yeah, before you know it, two, three more hours of your rest have gone down the drain. So that's not ideal. So I'm very picky at which tournaments. And I ask beforehand, hey, is this possible to, to take my partner here? Yes or no? And if I sense, and uh, I think as an umpire, you get a very good sense of what people are saying and what they are actually saying. So if you even have a sense of, hmm, they said yes out of politeness, but they really don't want this to happen, then I say, okay, you can still bring her. I mean, I, I've done that at the tournament also where she was outside the tournament completely and she went sightseeing and she went shopping or whatever. And, uh, but uh, it's not ideal. So, no. yeah, we try to, at least I try also to, I have also a, an employee's contract like that, that I told my employer, I said, listen, I need 25 days a year at least for my umpiring, right? Yeah. Then my partner, my family also wants to go on a holiday with me. So that takes another two weeks. Yeah. So if you cannot give me 35 to 40 days holiday, then I'm not joining you guys. And well, they signed for it. They agreed with it. So that gives me that extra room to also take my partner on a holiday. Uh, what, about you, Hatcha? what about you, Hatcha? Well, I work in education. 
Uh, and in the Netherlands, that means that you have a little bit more holidays than average. Um, but I'm not a teacher anymore. So what I what I've agreed upon with my employer is like flexibility. So there are all these holidays where my colleagues will be off, but I will work some of those weeks where all, everyone's off and then I'll be gone a week when everybody's working. So to sort of compensate for that. Yeah, I, I've, I've been really I've been really interested in the, the COVID situation has been so bad. And I, I obviously follow a lot of players and, you know, I see, you know, everybody talks about the lack of money in badminton. And it's, unless you're at the very, very top level trying to make a living from it, it's very difficult. But the perk of the job is traveling, seeing beautiful places, seeing local culture and all those things. And during COVID, this whole thing of arriving in an airport, going to a hotel, being locked in a hotel room, going to a venue, at least, at very least, the players get to go to the gym. What do you do? What do you guys do as umpires in the room? And that's it. What happens there? Count the mosquitoes. What's that? Count the mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's been it's been very strange. This year, I've been to two European Championships, and one of them was with uh, Freek, actually. Um, and they there was yeah three days of quarantining in the room, uh, but as soon as your arrival test was negative, at least you could go out the room for food, but that was the only out that you were allowed or going outside alone. So having a walk around, having some fresh air around. Um, so yeah, it is, it is strict. I haven't experienced the, the bubbles in 2020. I think they were a little bit more strict or the ones that the one that was in Thailand, which I understand was very, very strict, more, more prison like, even though yeah. it was with best intentions, maybe it was a bit too harsh also for the players actually. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, we are still learning on how to how to to deal with this this COVID situation and having a safe environment for my environment for us and for the players and of course also for the fans that we are now seeing back in the venues and trying yeah. to get like an atmosphere that we saw in Denmark and France uh, in recent weeks and also in Finland actually. Um, so it it is a struggle trying to find a balance between quarantining and having a bubble situation versus. Yeah, there's also lots of countries in Europe that are actually going to normal situations again. So how do you balance those things out? It's quite hard. And I, I don't envy the ones who have to organize this. It's really, really hard. All we can do is just uphold the rules that they give to us. So testings, uh, avoid contact with local people, don't go to restaurants, things like this. Yeah, and Martin, to be fair, it continues to be a blessing. For me, every nomination, uh, every tournament I'm invited to, yep. it's a blessing. I'm a man from a humble background, and especially with my current partner, my uh, fiance is from Kenya. She hasn't seen her family in two years yeah. because they can't travel here and she can't travel there because of this uh, pandemic. And here's me, lucky chum. Yes, I have yeah. to do uh, 50 tests a year. Yes, I can count all the wrinkles of every piece of wallpaper in every hotel room where <laughs> I've ever been. But I get to travel. I've been to Ukraine. I've been to the Emirates. I've been to Japan this year. I've been to Finland for badminton. So I feel very privileged and very blessed that thanks to these very, sometimes very strict, but very necessary sports bubbles that have been created by BWF, by BE, by local sports organizers. We still get to do what we love. And yes, uh, Paralympics without spectators in the stands is not ideal. But we still managed it and we got there. 
and the players did it and the players played at a phenomenal level and we got to see it from the best seat of the house so who am i to complain that in tokyo every morning at 5 45 a.m i had to get up to do a pcr test every morning for 10 days in a row and then catch the 5 to 7 a.m bus to the stadium which was the only place we were allowed to see and the same bus brought you back at 11 11 30 at night every day I'm not complaining about that because I was a official at the first ever Paralympics with badminton on it, yeah, okay. and I couldn't be more blessed. So oh, can, can I ask yes, you, I'm going to go go back yeah. a little bit. Can I? Can you tell me what it is that you love about the job so much? Well, many things, but it goes back to. Uh, what I said earlier. In fundamental, in fundamental, you know, I'm, I'm not, not talking about the travel. I'm talking about. I'm not talking about travel or tournaments. Or I just fundamentally, with regard to badminton, what is it about umpiring that you particularly love so much that you that you what you what do you enjoy? Do you like finding the anomalies? Is it? Do you like to be challenged? Do you like to? Obviously, it's it's amazing to I, 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 interesting to interview Bert and you know talk about the most amazing play, but. You're kind of there, but you're not really watching, kind of thing. It's you know what. Yeah, I remember saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, but, uh, I, sorry. Yeah. yeah, for for me, it's um, I've been a sports fan all my life, um, and this this is the first time in my life that I actually am involved in 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 the top level of sports um, and having a, a a crucial role, but hopefully not as visible of a role, and still get to 